from Ephesians uh, 4 this morning. Uh, The text that we're actually going to be looking at is going to be uh, verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read those uh, verses for us, and then I'm going to just try to uh, give a little bit of a setting on, on, on this passage and uh, what a how um, I believe that this will be of use for us as a church family. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here at Highlands Baptist Church, we want to be a healthy church. That is our aim. We want to be a healthy church. And the pathway for us to be a healthy church is for us to follow and obey God's plan for the church. At Highlands, uh, the elders are not wondering what, uh, what plan can we come up with as elders uh, for the church in kind of an organizational, uh, like, you know, uh, what can we do to make a difference in the world on our own? Uh, we have a mission and God has given that to us in the scriptures. Or I should say this, God has a mission and his mission has a church. And so therefore, Highlands Baptist Church believes that the healthiest path for us is to follow the path that God has given us in his word. There's a variety of places we could go to in the scriptures to look at the different nuances of God's plan for his people, for his church. Ephesians 4 is one of those. It's probably one of the more popular ones because it's so condensed and and centered on God's plan for his people. And so we're going to look in this passage, and our plan is, we'll see how I do at the time, but our plan is to just look at, really, what is God's plan for us as a church family? Uh, What are we doing together here on Sunday after Sunday? Um, Are we just kind of sitting through services and singing songs and kind of going through motions? No, there's much more going on than just the externals of of a service structure. We really are seeking to obey the the path and the plan that God has for us as his people, and we find that in part in Ephesians chapter 4. Really, these truths we're going to look at are are simple. Um, Christ is the goal of the church. Or I could say this, Christ is the goal of church growth, right? Church growth is kind of a term fraught with problems, but Christ is the goal of church growth. Christ is the source for church growth. Christians are responsible to work for church growth. If you thought you were off the hook, sorry, there you go. And finally, love is essential for church growth. Um, So, how are we going to look at this? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and through 16, we'll begin with Christ is the goal of church growth. Uh, Another, if if the words church growth seem a little problematic for you, um, think of this, Christian maturity. Uh, The word growth uh, might come, might bring all sorts of different things in your mind when attached to the idea of church. You might be thinking numbers, you might be thinking of, you know, buildings and, and size in that sense, but the scriptures define church growth differently. The scriptures define church growth primarily um, in the idea of maturity, of the depth that God builds in his people. Is it numerical? Yes. God is gathering a people from all nations to his name. Yes. But it's more than just numerical growth. There is a sense that God is what uh, what he told the disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. What is that? That's growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christian maturity is what I want us to focus on here. That's really the context of what's happening in Paul's writing here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you look back at verse 13 and 14, you look in verse 15, you start seeing these words grow. 
and elsewhere in the scriptures, that is describing the maturity of a child experiencing what he experiences at the ages. In fact, that's a description that was given to Jesus as he was a child, and it said, and he grew, and he became strong in spirit, and he grew. That's the idea of that growth. What was it? A growth physically? Yes. But that was exempt. It was, uh, that growth physically was showing that there was a maturing, a maturing that was occurring. So the church does not become mature overnight. It's good for us to remember that. Growth is something that takes a while. Some of you maybe have a plant on your windowsill and you have been cheering it on to grow. We have one of those plants as well. It's been there for months and it's still that big. I don't know if it's growing or not, but growth like that happens slowly. Farmers understand this. You understand that if you have a garden. That's the model that's being applied then for us, for our understanding of church growth as well. It's going to take time. We're not going to be uh, mature as Christians in a week. Uh, A sermon is not going to make you suddenly a mature Christian overnight. But be encouraged, God has not abandoned us. He has a plan. And he has a plan for us as a, as a body of his Christians, uh, to, as a church family, to grow up together for his glory. In verse 15, notice the words that are being used there. He says, we are to grow up in every way. God's plan for his church is that, for church growth is a comprehensive plan. Every way refers to the ways he's written about back in verse 13. There's growth in unity. There's growth in the knowledge of Christ. There's this pursuit of mature personhood, Christ-likeness. We're to grow up in love, verse 16. It's comprehensive. And this is what Paul wants for his readers to understand is this is the idea of a body growth. The church is a body that is to grow up into Christ. We are a body. So I need to say this because in our Western age, we are very individualized in how we understand truth, how we appropriate it and then seek to live it out. Uh, you might be thinking that church is here to kind of give you kind of a personalized spiritual uh, plan, a place for you to grow spiritually. And that is true. And that's not primarily what's happening. Um, I think you would all be very distressed if only your index finger was growing, okay, or grew. I suppose most of us are done growing. Some of us are not. But just imagine, okay, if only your index finger grew when you're, as you were a child. That would be alarming to you, okay? It would be alarming to your parents and your caregivers. There needs to be this... Healthy growth is comprehensive growth. It's growth that happens all around in the body. And that's what Paul is highlighting here. When we grow up to him in every way and to him who is the head. So this maturity, this growth that we're looking for, we don't want just an individual here or there to be growing. We want for us corporately, holistically as an entire body, as a church family, to be growing up together. Say, okay, I get the idea of growth that Paul is writing about here. Now, you said that Christ is our goal of growth. Where is that in the text? It's right here in verse 15. We are to grow up in every way, here it is, into him who is the head. And if you're wondering who the him is, keep reading, into Christ. It's very explicit. Christ is our shared goal of Christian growth, of Christian maturity. Numerical growth is not our greatest need. Financial growth is not our greatest need. Ministry program growth is not our greatest need. Musical style, performance is not our greatest need. All of those are not unimportant, but our greatest need is that our growth in all those areas, whatever strategies a church family might choose to pursue in that growth, our greatest need is growth into Christ. So the best thing that means then as a Christian that you can do for your church family is to to passionately set Christ as your goal and pursue him with your church family. This is what we want Highlands Baptist Church to be. A group of Christians who are committed in covenant to be responsible to help each other follow Jesus. 
to grow up more and more into be like Jesus. That is our pursuit. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes it this way. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses he wrote about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do this? Hear his next words. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. When a church family is together pursuing Christian maturity by what? Looking to Jesus, the natural result is that we're going to be laying aside weights and sins that cling to us so that we can run the race of the Christian life with endurance. And so the text teaches us that God's plan for his church is Christian maturity. And that Christian maturity is not just that we be big Bible brainiacs, but that we be a people that are pursuing growth into Christ. Number two, how will we grow into him? Is it even possible that we can do this? Yes. Number two, Christ is the source for our growth. Okay, isn't this great? God says his plan for his people is pursue Christ. And then God's people are like, okay, but how do we do this? I mean, sin and, and, and we live in a world cursed by sin. We were reminded about that in dramatic fashion this morning with our mission spotlight. How are we to do this? Take heart, Christians. God has given us the answer and his name is Jesus. Ephesians 4, look at it. We are to grow up in in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. But look at these next words, from whom? The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I know the last part of that verse is full of complicated, like prepositional phrases. We'll get there in a second. But notice the source. We are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom? Jesus is the wellspring of Christian maturity, of Christian growth. Christians obtain spiritual life and vigor from him, from Christ. So Jesus then is the head. He is the ultimate leader, okay? He is the one from whom we draw the resources and strength and perseverance and endurance and patience so that we can live the Christian life in a way that displays his glory. When you think of the word head, uh, think of the word, it, it conveys a couple of different ideas. One being the source, like a, a river might have the, the head of the river or the head of a spring, where it's, that's where it's flowing from, right? Or a head is kind of a control and command station. All of you are doing lots of things right now that you're not even aware of, that your head is very aware of. Um, you're breathing, you're blinking, you're swallowing, you're doing all sorts of amazing things that are keeping you alive. How is that happening? Because of your, your head is telling you to do that, your brain uh, there's lots of other things that your brain tells you to do, and that's where you chose to sit and why you're dressed the way you are and everything else, okay? So that's the imagery that Paul is using for the church to understand their relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not just kind of a wise teacher that we like his sayings and we're just kind of borrowing these pithy, wise statements to give us relevance in a world. No, he is our head. He is the source of life for us as his people, and he's also the command control center for what we do together as a church body, which is, by the way, that's why we structure our services the way we do, why we're at Highlands kind of obnoxious about being word-centered, because we believe that God's plan is in the scriptures, and Jesus Christ has given to his people in the person of Christ and also in the written word, the word of Christ. So then, this passage teaches us that the church derives its ability to grow from Christ. Another passage that alludes to this is in Colossians chapter 2 when it says that we're um, holding fast to the word, to the head, to Christ, right? 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. We, as a church family, do not self-supply Christian growth. We can't reverse engineer it. Um, There's been conferences and many, many books that have been written trying to reverse engineer spiritual growth. As if you go to a conference or read this book, then you're going to be promised this particular outcome. God might be pleased to use those efforts here and there. I'm not saying that we cast aside wisdom of the day in that sense that is bound in the Scriptures, but ultimately what? Growth that really matters is from God. This is why the Proverbs said it this way, right? You labor in vain unless what? The Lord builds the house. So, we do not self-supply growth. Now, that may make you feel like, well, you know, uh, discouraged or hopeless. It shouldn't because... Here's what's encouraging. Jesus is not absent from the church. Jesus did not start the church and then leave it to fend for itself on its own and kind of is wringing his hands up in heaven, hoping that it all works out. No, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so Jesus is the one into whom we are to grow and Jesus is the one actively supplying all we need for that growth. This is good news for for God's church. In Ephesians chapter 1, all right, we are reminded that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. So if you are concerned about, can Jesus pull this off, that should put all those concerns to rest. This is the gospel, by the way, the good news of Christianity. Really, every other world religion is offering a path and a plan for you to achieve transcendence or enlightenment or, or growth, Right? The Christian message is reversed. It's basically there to tell you, you are a loser and can't do it. But God sent us a hero who did. His name is Jesus. What God did through Jesus is he took a bunch of dead bones, right? Us, right? And he gave us life by grace through faith so that together he made us into a living body, his body. And he gave us Jesus to be the head so that we could display his glory to the nations. Knowing the story of Jesus does not make you a Christian. God makes people Christians when they turn from their sin, when they trust and embrace Jesus entirely as their only hope before God for forgiveness of sin. That's what makes you a Christian. That's what makes you part of this wonderful family of God that Paul is writing about here in Ephesians 4. Are you a Christian like that? Not do you just kind of follow Christian Religion? Are you kind of Christian Christianese in what you do generally? But is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Has He made you His child through faith in Him? Okay. Jesus. He's our goal and He is the source for us to achieve that goal. So, what's our responsibility? You might, we could end the sermon here and you're like, man, that sounds good. Because all I got to do is just, you know, let go and let God, and it's all going to be good. Well, Paul writes on, okay? And that's where we get into kind of the, uh, the, the dense meatloaf section of this passage, right? When he talks about all this stuff about joints and equipping and parts working properly and bodies growing and building, right? So number three, the church is responsible to work for Christian growth. Jesus is our goal and he's our source and we're responsible. Ephesians 4.16 We are to be joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, there's really the emphasis on responsibility. When each part is working properly, what is the result? Makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. The church is not passive. It's good for us to hear calls to, uh, like we did this morning in the mission spotlight, to champion for truth and righteousness in a sin-darkened world. It's important for us as a church to be active. There is work for us to do. We don't create growth. God supplies our growth through Christ, through Christ our head, but we must work together in pursuing Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that's all God's doing, <laughs> for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Again, God's doing that we should walk in them, our responsibility. So, to understand the responsibility that we have as a church family, we must understand Paul's word picture that describes the church as a body. This is one of those ideas that we think we immediately understand and we just kind of press on. But I think it's useful if we just pause for a moment and just appreciate the richness of this analogy that Paul is is using here to get across this point. What is a body? Yeah, just think about that. I was, uh, we were on the van ride over this morning. Um, I, when I, we were talking, and one of my children at the end of the sentence says, what is that? And he asked for the word definition, and I remember thinking, man, it's really hard to define words. What is a body? Well, a definition from Cambridge University Press reads this way. A body is a whole physical structure that is a person. What does it include then? Well, think about, really, a, your body is full of all sorts of different parts. It's a unified physical structure. It's made up of many parts. But if I took a bag of bones and threw it on the floor, it would not be a body. A healthy body is when all the parts are held together and function as a unit. We get this, okay? I know this isn't like earth-shattering, but just think of that analogy as how Paul wants us to understand how we are to, pers- to understand what a church body is then. This means that in a body, okay, or in a church body, there's going to be great diversity represented by each different body part. Your, your pinky is, finger is much different than your ear. I mean, what similarity do they have with each other other than they're covered in skin? There's blood running through them, right? They're, it's very different. And I don't know you can go. You can kind of laugh and chuckle as you try to look at all the differences, right? Each body part is different, but the body is made up of those diverse parts. And because of that, it can do a, a Astonishing things. Astonishing. Each of those parts is joined and held together by joints, right? Things we don't even see. We don't even really notice until there's something wrong with it, right? (laughs) Your knee, oh man, something's wrong. Now you're thinking about what's going on inside of the knee. There's all this complexity in these individual parts, minute, small things that are all joined together for an astonishing person. And the church works together like that. The church is not just an individual, you know, gathering around an individual uh, person or human superhero. We are gathering on Jesus, yes, but the Christians don't think of your Christian or spiritual giftedness apart from your function in the church body. Don't think about church as an organization that exists to please and serve you. This is the opposite of what the scriptures teach. It's popular and a prevalent notion in our society where really the message of our world is you achieve personal fulfillment and satisfaction. And so we can kind of approach the church then as, well, that's another organization that is designed to help me achieve my greatest dreams in life. Wrong. 
God has gifted you as his child, putting you into this body that is his and he's the head. And it's all there to accomplish his purposes and plans. And we get to do it with each other. Spiritual abilities and gifts are given for body life, not personal fulfillment. We must move from the eyes to the we's, from the me's to the us's in our understanding of the church family. So I think um, the, the reason that this passage can be so useful for us in the Western modern age of Christianity is that one of the most dangerous things in a church isn't necessarily those outside doctrines that are, that are heinous and, and unbiblical, but it's those inside things that we might not even really understand are there. One of those has been defined as expressive individualism. Some of you have heard this idea. It's really a philosophy uh, that threatens Christ's church today because it's a belief that the individual's highest loyalty should be to himself or herself. Watch pretty much any sort of advertisement. Why should you buy this chewing gum? Because it is going to be one of the ways you express your individuality. Why should you buy this car? Why shouldn't you buy that car over this car? Because all the other cars are boring and look like that. Don't look like the herd. You need to look like this guy driving that car, right? I mean, I don't, you can just kind of tease out all those messages. It's promoting and pulling on that thread of expressive individualism. The notion of that then is in us probably more than we care to admit. And this passage seeks to correct that notion. So, for instance, many times we can be very quick to throw off restraints or hindrances, things we don't like because they stand in the way of expressive individualism. The result then is that we're dangerously noncommittal to the relationships and institutions that matter most in life that God has given us. Expressive individualism can lead you to constantly be on the quest for something better, more perfect, that's going to please you in greater fashion. But we forget that the church does not exist for us. We exist for the church. We exist for God's glory, and God is displaying his glory through the church. And it's astonishing that we get to be part of that. When we are disappointed by the sting of sin in our lives or the lives of those we worship with, expressive individualism can make us to be very quick to seek out something else that is going to make us feel better, be a better fit, fit our preferences, instead of what? Taking up our cross and dying to self and following Jesus together. I know this is not a popular notion in our world society, but this is God's plan. God's church will be healthiest when we embrace this as best. So this live expressive individualism elevates preference and personal opinion to the level of Bible doctrine. So maybe God's spirit would be convicting us. And again, this is being, being preached not because I think there's a major problem of this in this church. Praise God for that. That's God's grace. But this is so that we can be informed of it, so we can see it in ourselves, call attention to it in others, and say, wait, let's not, let's not pass by God's best by giving loyalty to ourselves. Just imagine how your marriage or your personal or professional relationships or your perspective on church family might be influenced and positively encouraged by abandoning that notion of expressive individualism and embracing God's plan for his church. We get to follow Jesus together. Closely connected, right? With all of this idea of maturing is a sense of being connected, this joint-like relationships that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. It's God's plan for Christians to have close relationships. Okay, so if you're like expressive individualism, what's going to fill that vacuum? Something much better. Close relationships with other Christians. Think of how closely your 
joints are connected. Maybe that's the problem. Some of your joints aren't closely connected. Um, right? And it causes pain and discomfort. But knees and elbows and shoulders are supposed to function well when they're held tight, tightly together. Not too tight, though, right? Because then that's a, that's a different problem. But there's, they get things done because of those close connections. And again, using Paul's analogy, I believe that Paul wants us to understand the richness that God has intended for his people, that we as God's people, we're not just like marbles getting thrown into a room together. We're kind of ricocheting off each other for a while. But we're like water droplets getting thrown together and we kind of bloop, go together and now we're this body of water. I know it's kind of a weird illustration, but you get the difference, uh, different analogies? I think that's what Paul is encouraging us. One way that Christians then can have close relationships is by pursuing other Christians and seeking to do them good to help them follow Jesus with you. There's a million of different ways that you can do this. You can do a lot of them from your home. You can do a lot of them just around an open Bible with a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is that your drink is. It's very simple things. It can be a text message. It can be a note. It can be a phone call. There are a million of different ways for us to do this and pursue it. And I want to encourage us as a church family to understand our responsibility to pursue this type of growth. Jesus, our head. Jesus, our source. Let's get busy helping each other follow Jesus. What can you do this week to promote this kind of close, body-like relationship in your church family? What's one thing you can do this week? Maybe it's not something you do overtly with others. Maybe you just start getting your church directory and you open it and you start praying for church families. Like, well, I don't even know them. What a great way to get to know people. Pray for them. And next time you see them, you might have an interest on getting to know them, finding out what God is doing and how you can help them follow Jesus. Working properly, right? Just as the physical body in verse uh, 16, he's using the analogy. Um, to work properly, right? The body must have everything happening correctly. Lungs breathing, hearts beating, nose sniffing, mouths tasting, right? So we need to all respond then to our head in the way he's called us to. As I look at this group of Christians gathered, it's astonishing the variety of gifts that are represented in this group. Um, if I were to try to hand out gifts to people, it would be terrible. Horrible. Because there's things I'd never even think about. God is all-wise, all-knowing. The heart doesn't matter if there aren't any lungs. Right? The kidney doesn't matter if there's no stomach. And there's doctors in this room. Maybe I'm telling wrong things. You can, you can, you can correct me afterwards. But friends, take heart in that God has masterfully gifted you. And he intends that to be joy for you, yes, but primarily for the good of God's people. Um, where is all this going? Christ is the head, yes. Christ is our source, yes. We've got to be busy, okay. Um, there are, there are, um, uh, are ways for you to do that. I've thrown out a few suggestions. I, there is a group of creative, ingenious, resourceful, spirit uh, dwell people in, in front of you this morning. I have high confidence about all the good works that God can do through us for one another. So then, what is necess- what's the necessary ingredient for all of this to work? And it, this is where we'll conclude. In verse 16, it's the very end of it, okay? As he progresses through this, all these joints and equipping and working together properly, what? Makes the body grow. But what result? What is the result then? Here it is at the end of that passage, in the end of that phrase of verse 16. So that it builds itself up in love. Our world would put a different conclusion there. It would be some sort of massive, big activity. That's how our world judges amazing things. 
But all this is joining up to what? So that it builds itself up in love. Love is the necessary ingredient for Christian maturity, for church growth. Which means then that if, well, let's just work through it this way. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, look back there. He is writing about love. In verse 15, he tells us to be speaking the truth how? In love. And now he ends this instruction by pointing us back to this essential ingredient for church maturity, which is love. So the church body can only experience healthy growth, healthy maturity, when that work is done in love. What then is Christian love? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We can stay in the same book. Just page, a page over, a screen over. Verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, why is he rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why. What did he do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made, a, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Christian love takes the initiative. It's proactive and it engages in self-sacrifice for the benefit of the other. How do we know that? Because Jesus is the perfect example of Christian love. So the responsibility we just talked about of us growing together, working properly, functioning in that way, does not mean it's easy or it's convenient. It means it's going to take sacrifice and dying to self and putting up with things you don't like, deeply don't like. Why? Because you are rich in mercy because of love. Those that have been caregivers to children do this all the time. You are rich in mercy. Why? Because of love. And so must we be with one another. Why? Because that's how God is with us. He's been the trailblazer. Christian love sacrifices and serves the others, even when the other is unlovely. So all of our Christian ministry must be done in love because Christian love defines the Christian community. In John chapter 13, Jesus is saying, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the bar, his love. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Which means then that the Christian community is not known by a squishy, sentimental love, but by a firm, loyal, covenant love that is there when it matters, when it's difficult, when it costs. That's the kind of love that arrests our world's attention and points them to something different is going on here. There's something otherworldly present there. What is it? Christian love. So all of our Christian ministry must be done in love because if we don't have love, we have nothing. Well, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13. You can look there, but the Apostle Paul is writing about Christian love. It's one of those well-known passages on love. We often run right into what love is later on in that section. But if we back up just a little bit and we listen to Paul's words when he talks about if he could speak an angelic language, if he could give all of his money to the poor, if he could give himself to be burned at the stake for some noble cause, but if there was a lack, if there was an absence of love, and if, it was, if love was absent, none of it mattered. So it means this. As a church family, we need to be careful that we don't pursue growth externally and have a vacuum of love internally. We will not be displaying God's glory. 
So that means then as we pursue to be working and functioning together as God intends, looking to Jesus, our goal, being encouraged and finding our source for loving others through Jesus, we're doing it all with the idea of love for one another, building itself up in love. What if we don't have love? I'm borrowing these comments from James Montgomery Boyce. Listen to these words. If you subtract love from joy, what do you have? You have the kind of hedonistic reveling found in the secular world, the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. Joy is distorted. Take love from sanctification. That's the process of becoming more and more like God. The result is self-righteousness, the kind of thing that distinguished the scribes and the Pharisees of Christ's day but allowed them to be filled with hatred so that they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. Holiness is destroyed. If you take love from truth, well, the result is bitter orthodoxy. Truth remains, but it is proclaimed in such an unpleasant, harsh manner that it fails to win anybody. We take love from mission, you have colonialism. In colonialism, we're working to win people for our denomination, our organization, our empire, but not for Christ. You take love from unity, and you have this church tyranny in which a church imposes human standards on those within rather than calling them to the, to the, the joy that is found in obeying Christ. So if we build ourselves up in love together as a church family, we will have distinguishing marks of being the body of Christ. Ephesians 4. Love for God leads to joy. And nothing is more joyful than knowing and loving God. This is what we want to do together. We're helping each other follow Jesus. How? By encouraging each other to what? Build itself up in love. You're like, man, I want to be part of a group that loves me. Remember that love is Jesus-focused. And so this isn't this idea of kind of a self-congratulation, self-admiration society. No, this is meaning we're going to be around people and we're going to be those people that are encouraging each other to build ourselves up in love of Jesus. So we want to help each other keep loving God. So Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 12, right? We're going to then lay aside the sins that, that hold us back from what? Enjoying God more. This gives the church a saltiness and effectiveness with one another. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ will lead us to holiness, right? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will obey what I command? Love for the word of God will lead to truthfulness, right? If we love God's word, we're going to read it and grow in the knowledge of it and we'll be able to discern those things that are called truth in our world that are actually lies of the devil. And we heard about that in the scripture reading this morning, right? Of the devil deceiving. A love for the world will lead for us to be effective in a world mission. World that way, okay? Not in a bad world way. And love for other believers will lead us to unity. Remember, the church does not become more mature overnight. Here we are in 2021. I don't know what the Lord has in store for us in this year. I'm not going to try to predict that. <laughs> I think last year made all, anybody had a notion of prediction, just be quiet. Ephesians 4, though, we can predict this. This is God's plan for us. We can, what? Follow the simple plan of what? Finding our focus on Jesus, drawing our source of strength from Jesus, getting busy working alongside of each other as responsible Christians, all the while seeking to build this church family up in love. So what might you need to change? In what way is God calling you? Some simple act of obedience. 
a confession of an attitude, a preoccupation that is just worldly and devilish rather than godly and gracious. I don't know what the need is, but Ephesians 4 is a path of joy for us as a church family.